Good morning, Salt City. My name is Jordan, and we're going to dive right into Romans 8. We're planning on finishing it out this morning. So uh, the text will be on the screens, but I would love it if you guys would follow along in your Bibles as well and, and read this as we go. So we're going to get right into it. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Okay, so before I keep going, I'm going to keep reading, but I got to clarify, what are the these things? So he's referring to everything else he has said in the book of Romans to this point. All right, so Romans chapter one and two, that no one is righteous in God's sight, but we're all condemned under the law. But then Romans three, that we've been made righteous in Christ, that a righteousness has been revealed outside of us. In Romans four, that we access it through faith. And in Romans five, that we're dead in Adam, but we're alive in Christ. In Romans six, that that our, our old nature, our sinful nature is dead and we're alive in Christ. But then Romans seven, that there's this warring nature between those two or this warring, this battle between those two natures in us. And then Romans 8, that the no condemnation that's in Christ Jesus settles that war and in the spirit we have new life. Okay, so in light of all of those things, he's now gonna summarize the beauty of that message. And a lot of scholars think that Romans is the greatest book that's ever been written, the most important work in the history of the world and this is the pinnacle moment of that book. So this is very likely some of the most important words that have ever been written down in the history of the world. All right, let's read it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the quotation that Drew read. But verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so that text is full of questions. Okay, there's, there's question marks everywhere, but all of those questions are rhetorical questions. The answer is assumed. And here's why. is because the answer is that, that what can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing because of Christ Jesus. This is what God is doing in this text. It's like he's holding up his people, the people of God, and he's asking this question over the universe. Hey, does anybody want to come against my people? Is there anybody that has the authority to challenge all of these remarkably good things that I've done for my people? And there's no answer in response because nobody can answer back to God. He's the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate good in the universe. And he's asking these rhetorical questions over the universe to essentially gloat over you, over the good things that he offers you. And so these questions in the text actually function as promises because the answer is just assumed that nobody can challenge God's goodness in Christ Jesus to you. So here's what I want to do today is I want to look at 
the four remaining questions that we haven't addressed that are actually promises from God. And I wanna enjoy these good promises that God's given us, all right? So here's the first one. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is from verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now I want you to imagine if we took that first clause out of there and we just asked that question, who can be against us? Well, it'd be a pretty simple answer. There's a lot of things that can be against us. I mean, you can be against you. You contradict yourself a lot. The world, the flesh, the devil, all of those things are against us. Often it feels like culture is against us. There's lots of things that can be against us. But that first part of that clause is the important qualifier. If God is for us, then what can be against us? And the answer is nothing. So that statement, if God is for us, is the thing that changes everything about the question. So, so the question I want to ask about that is, what does it mean for God to be for us? How is he for us? Well, here's how he's not for us. He's not for us the way that a fan is for a sports team. All right, so you can be for the Twins or for the Vikings, right? But that's actually self-interested. It's just about you. You're trying to get this experience out of it. You're not for them in the sense that you're, it's really about them. It's about you. And contrary to popular belief, you're not actually helping with the situation. Okay, we don't win, they win. You're not doing anything to help them win, right? So, but I think sometimes we can think about God being for us in this sense, that God's kind of rah-rah, like he's cheering us on as we walk through life, but he's not actually helping us in the process. And in that for us can feel very theoretical and impractical, but that's not the way that God is for us. Remember that the primary way that God has identified his relationship with us in Romans 8 is that he's identified himself as our father and that we are his kids. So God is for us the way a dad is for his kids, which is a very different version of being for something. So if you're a parent, what it means to be for your kid is to be deeply and intensely concerned with their good, even at great cost to yourself. It's kind of wild what parents do for their kids. So I got to meet um, Violet Hunting last week, Kaylee and Dave's baby. And some of you were like, Kaylee was pregnant. Yeah, COVID's weird. You haven't seen Kaylee in a while. She not only was pregnant, but she has a second child now. And I got to meet that child and it was amazing. And we were sitting around uh, talking about kind of the birth story and Kaylee had to give birth in COVID and it was kind of a quick birth. So she gave birth with a mask on. So just layers on top of layers of nonsense. Um, but uh, it, and I, I just like can't, I was, I was sitting there just like shocked at how much you have to go through to have a child in particular for women that you carry around a child in your body for months. Then you go through that process and you go through it in the additional difficulties of COVID. And then your reward for that is then you spend the rest of your life not doing what you want to do so you can do what your kid wants to do. The, the love of a parent is illogical. And look, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. But, but it's, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> because you're, you're essentially giving up your life for the sake of this other human being and yeah you get a lot out of it but it's that's not the point right you create this human to love and the reason why we do that is because we're made in God's image and that's what God has done for us is he created us not because he needed us 
because he wanted community that he didn't have. He created us because he wanted to give love. But even that radical love of a parent, even the radical love that Kaylee has for Violet is, is still limited because there's still bad that can come on a kid regardless of what a parent does because parents aren't in control of the universe and other things can, can do bad to a child or there's even ways that we can sin against our own kids and hurt our own kids, but God's not like that. God has not limited the way that we are. And so he, his love is even further than that where there's no limitations to it. So it's not just that he desires and intends for our good, but he always, every single time, practically produces our good because there's nothing that can challenge his authority and his goodness. And so that's what it means for God to be for you is he always intends and produces your good. And this text this morning is an overflow of Romans 8, or 8, excuse me, Romans 8, 28, an expansion of Romans 8, 28, which says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So that's what we're talking about. But I also want to give a quick clarifier. Is God's relationship like that to everyone? Is every single person God's kid in that way? Well, no. Look back at Romans 8, 28. And for those who love God, all things work together according to his purpose. So that relationship, these promises, these incredible promises from Romans 8 are exclusively for those who love God. And so my question for you is, do you love God? Do you love him? So not the idea of him, not the idea of being religious, not the things that you could get from God, the the hope and the peace, those types of things. Do you love him to the point that God can call the shots in your life because you trust him so much and you've submitted your life to him? Do you love him in that sense? Because the reality is just listening to this message by no means means that these promises apply to you. And, I, and I, I think it's too important to not clarify that if you do not love God, you are not God's kid. You're actually God's enemy. That's what Romans 5 says. And so these promises don't apply to your life. But, but here's what I want you to know. If that's you, if, if you don't love God, if you have questions about if you do in fact love him, here's the good news is God is waiting for you. He, he wants to pursue you in his love. And if you're willing to come to him, he's ready to offer you all of these good gifts that he's talking about in Romans 8. They all can be yours. You can become his kid if you trust him. God wants to pursue you with these good things. All right, so that's the first question slash promise. Here's the second one. Will he not give us all things? Verse 32. Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, so that that all things in there is implying all good things. So it's saying, will he not graciously give us all? all good things. So again, let's take out that first clause and just get to the question piece of it. Will he give us all good things? Well, the evidence seems to point against that idea that God will give you all good things. 
Like how many of us are just looking at the world right now and looking at our lives and going, man, I just feel like I'm getting all kinds of good things. Or the text itself, Paul follows this up in the text in verse 35 and 36, saying that Christians are going to endure tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Those don't sound like good things. Or verse 36, that quote from the Psalm, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That doesn't sound like a good thing. And so to even get more practically speaking in your life, do you believe that God is giving you good things right now? Or when you look at your life, are you tempted? tempted to think that actually everything's going wrong or, or, or maybe in this moment, it's not as hard for you as it has been for a lot of people, but you've had those moments before where not only does it not seem like all good things are coming your way, but it seems like only bad is coming your way. And so the temptation in that moment is to drift away from God, right? Maybe for some of you that's happening right now. So maybe you're watching this this morning, but you haven't been tuning into a lot of these services and Maybe you're not really going to connection group anymore. Maybe you're thinking about going to a different church, but realistically you're not even sure if you're going to find a different church or if that will just be your way to kind of quietly exit the people of God. Maybe you're just frustrated and discouraged and you're not sure if you're planning on keeping going. Because here's the reality is when you look at the circumstances in your life and you're no longer able to see that God is giving good things to you, at some point you will conclude that God himself is not good and is not being good to you. But here's what I want you to see is that you're failing to see the greater story. So you are a part of this massive story that God is working in your life and throughout all of human history. And here's what happens in every single story. Conflict. Otherwise, it's not really a story, right? You read a novel and the main character starts having everything go wrong in his or her life. And here's what you don't do is you don't get to the conflict, get frustrated and stop reading and bail and say, man, that book stunk. What do you do? You keep reading because the conflict produces the payoff of the resolution. And so here's what I want you to remember is that you are a part of this unbelievable story if you know Christ. And here's the story is that he wants to save you. But so often when we think about salvation, we think only of conversion, which is a massive part of salvation, no doubt, but it's the starting point of salvation that sparks off this series of events of God's good pursuit of you to transform you into the image of his son. And so you're converted when you meet Jesus and you trust him, but then from there, God starts to sanctify you where, where he starts to change you into the image of Christ and help you to practically live in a different way. And he changes your loves and your desires until the point that one day you're glorified which is after death that you're resurrected to a new perfect body that can never die and you're standing with Jesus in eternity forever and you put on immortality and you in your eternal body reign with Christ forever. That's what Revelation says is that we will reign with Christ. And that was actually 
part of the plan from the beginning is that God created this world and then he set up Adam and Eve as his rulers to establish his name and his goodness in the earth and to enjoy his new creation with him. That was the plan and then we wrecked that plan, but ever since that point, God has been redeeming his creation and redeeming us to get us to that point where a redeemed people will rule in God's name over a new heavens and a new earth. And so when God says in this text that he wants to give you all good things, that's what he means. Is that literally a new creation God wants to give to you to rule and enjoy that good creation. That's what he means by all good things. But in order to make you into the type of person who could receive that type of weighty glory, who could live in that glorious reality, he has to do some transforming work in you now. And suffering in this life, things going wrong in this life, is one of his primary tools to do that work. Because God wants to give you ultimate good. When he says he wants to give you all good things, he means it. But he just has a different and better definition of what good is than we do. Here's what God knows. Is that famine, nakedness, danger, sword, COVID-19, all of the difficult realities of your life right now. Here's what he knows is that is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Being left alone in your pride in your greed, in your selfish ambition, in your sin is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And he doesn't want that worst possible thing to happen to you. And suffering weeds out sin. And so in his goodness, he gives you the opportunity to become glorious. He loves you way too much to give you the life that you want. Instead, he gives you the type of life that you would want if you knew everything that he knew. He is making you glorious. That's his plan. Now, how can we know that's true? When it feels like God is abandoning us, when it feels like God is killing us instead of bringing us to life, how can we be sure that that's true? Well, look back at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? So here's the argument that he is making. He's making an argument from the greater gift to the lesser gift. And so the logic is, if God will give you the ultimate gift, the best gift, of course he'll give you the lesser gift. Let's go back to that Kaylee and Violet illustration, right? So if Kaylee is willing to do all of those things and go through everything that she went through in order to have Violet, of course, when Violet is hungry, she'll give her a bottle. Like it'd be illogical to think that Kaylee wouldn't do the lesser thing if she's done all these greater things for Violet. It's the same argument here. Now I want you to, we don't have time to unpack this, but just think about the remarkable statement of value that that is on Christ. (laughs) Here's what Paul is arguing is you've got two gifts. One gift is inheriting all good things that have ever existed, the new heavens and the new earth, all of new creation. The second gift is Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Jesus Christ, if you take the net worth of everything good in existence, it is not even comparable to the net worth of Christ. That is how valuable Jesus Christ is. And Jesus gave his life for you. And so therefore that's how valuable you are. And here's the reality of the Christian life is that if you trust Jesus, you get both. You get Christ and you get everything good. 
but so many good things take time. And that's what's true for this good thing. As we have to wait on and trust Christ in the process of him developing us into the type of people who can receive that good gift in him. So earlier this summer, just me and I got to uh, take a trip to Door County, Wisconsin. And uh, it, was, it was so awesome. If you, if you don't know Door County, it's the, the peninsula of Wisconsin kind of sandwiched between Green Bay and Lake Michigan. And so there's just all of these um, just lakefront properties and beaches and stuff like that. And uh, it's this sweet place to get away. And there's all of these just kind of fun touristy small towns. And one day Jess and I were in Egg Harbor. Maybe some of you have been there, just this little small town by the water. And there's this uh, city park that's on this hill that just goes right down to the harbor. And we were, we were sitting there and it was like this perfect day. I mean, the water, there was like no wind. The water was like glass. We were watching a few boats out in the harbor. Our phones were in the car. Nobody could get in touch with us. It was, it was just, it was perfect. It, it was a morning, summer morning. So it was warm, but not too hot yet. And we were just spending time with God. And I was just thinking about heaven. And we we're just enjoying this moment. And then this giant tanker truck drove in. This like giant gas truck, diesel truck, the loudest truck I've ever heard in my life, which isn't true, but it felt like in that moment it was the loudest truck that I've ever heard in my life, drives down this hill and literally parks between us and the bay. And it ruined everything. And like it was, it was just, and then the guy gets out of the truck, leaves it running and just inexplicably leaves to do who knows what for like a half an hour. So I'm sitting there trying to enjoy this beautiful view and there's this loud truck in front of me blocking it. I was just sitting there laughing because I'm like, this is life. This right here is life. Like you're having this like glorious moment and like things are good and then a stinking truck drives in and ruins everything, okay? That, that is life on this earth. You get these like moments of glory, these little tastes of heaven and then something just comes in and ruins it and here's 2020, there's like a whole convoy of tr- uh, trucks driving in. There's planes flying over, dropping tanker trucks. They're dropping like, bon- like they're everywhere. It's just ruining everything, okay? That's 2020 and so the human experience is living in that tension of some of the beautiful like little glimpses of heaven, but things still being really wrong. And depending on your perception of what it means for Christ to give you all good things, you will react radically differently as we navigate this world. And so if your expectation is what it means for Christ to give you all good things is that you functionally can build heaven here. That, that life will go according to your plans and your expectations when that that uh, proverbial truck drives into your life, you're going to freak out. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get frustrated and you're going to want to bail on the faith. But if your perspective is that this is not home yet, and not only that, but this place is preparing you for your final home, then when that truck comes in, you're not going to be that thrown off. C.S. Lewis talked about something like this. It, it'll actually whet your appetite for heaven. He, he talked about how if we find desires in ourselves that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that we were made for a different, better world. You're not home yet. And so when things are, are off, it actually can whet your appetite for heaven. And in fact, more than that, it not only help you anticipate the resolution, it can prepare you for the resolution. And so what you're able to do in that moment is you're, you're able to look at the harbor view in your life and the tanker truck in your life and say, this is good. 
because you see God's goodness behind it, transforming you into what you should become. All right, next question. Who shall bring a charge slash who shall condemn? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? So condemnation is feeling the gap. So the gap between who you are and who you feel like you should be or who other people expect you to be. And guys, I've been, I've been feeling that lately. I'm not going to lie. Um, I've been feeling this, this weight of like wanting to fix myself and fix the world and solve the world's problems. And so I actually got this, this image recently that perfectly articulated what I've been feeling. So let's just go ahead and, and put that up. So I just want you to soak this in for a minute. So we got, we got Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers, and then we've got Tom Hanks in Castaway. And 2019 is Mr. Rogers, or you might be thinking, dude, you were never Mr. Rogers, that's fair. Um, but maybe felt a little bit more like Mr. Rogers and now feel like I'm losing my mind in Castaway, right, in 2020. But, but look, you can take that down because that's gonna get distracting. But um, that's, that's a little bit of what I feel like. And it, look, it's not just me, it's like teachers. I'm feeling for you guys. I'm talking to some of you guys that are, you feel like that. You feel just haggard right now by 2020. A lot of us feel that. And here's where condemnation comes into play and that is that we, we, we're all getting this look at our own limits, our own inadequacies and how out of control we are of our own lives. And we feel shame that we're not better or we're not more. I feel that, I feel like I need to fix the problems in the world. I feel like I need to fix the problems in our church and I'm looking at it and I'm like, I can't even fix the problems in myself. Nevertheless, for all of these other situations and I, I feel discouraged and exhausted because of that, I feel condemnation. And here's, what some, here's some of what's happening as well is that culture right now is piling on that condemnation. Here's what I mean we quickly are becoming an honor-shame culture. So honor or justification is something that you have to achieve by having the right public persona. So there's this intense corporate pressure to hold on to the right political stance, whatever the political stance is, depending on who you're spending time with or whoever opinions you value, to hold the right political stance or to be really well-versed in the moral talking points of, of culture and to display those moral talking points publicly. And there's an expectation that you should have the power to not only fix all of the problems in you, but to fix all of the problems in culture. And if you're not able to fix those problems or if you commit a culturally unforgivable sin, you're out, you're condemned, you're shamed. But if you produce enough public righteousness, if you display the right amount of morality, then you're justified, you're righteous. And here's what that produces, outrage culture. People standing on opposite sides of moral issues and shaming and condemning each other to try to prove their own righteousness. And here's what that is, a ministry of condemnation. It's a false gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And who is condemned if you are God's kid? No one. 
None of us are condemned if we are in Christ. Verse 34, who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In his resurrection, Jesus put death and condemnation in its place. Jesus put death to death. So you no longer have to experience death and condemnation. He took condemnation on himself so that you could be justified. He traded you. He took your condemnation so he could give you justification. So there's no longer an effort left to justify yourself either to yourself or to God or publicly because Jesus has justified you in his death and resurrection. And not only does he not condemn you, but he intercedes for you. When it feels like the voices of condemnation are loud in your life, whether they're your own voice or the voice of culture, Jesus's voice is louder in that intercession. Here's why. is because Jesus has raised to the right hand of the Father, and so he's right next to the Father, and he's whispering intercession in the Father's ear. And so no matter how loud the condemnation gets from earth or even in your own soul, Jesus is right next to the Father, whispering intercessions on your behalf, saying that you are not condemned, but you're saved. Saying that the word over your life is not judgment, but grace. He intercedes for you. Last question. What can separate us from the love of God? Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, did you catch those those categories that he was throwing out. So he says death or life. So the physical realities of our world, angels or rulers, the heavenly realms, the spiritual realities of our world, past or present, time itself, height or depth, space. So he's literally taking every category that he can think of and he's saying, can anything in this category separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. And then just for good measure, he throws in or of an or Uh, anything else in all of creation, can anything else in all of creation separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. Here's what's happening is Jesus is standing in front of us and he's making vows. He's making wedding vows to his church. Scripture uses the imagery of a wedding and Jesus is standing before his bride making promises to us. And think about wedding vows. They're, they're really serious vows. It says, for better or for worse, in richer or poorer, I will love you. But even those vows are conditional. It says, nothing but death can separate me from you. But here's the vows of Jesus to you. Not even death could separate me from you. He makes promises that never can be broken to you. And so when you're struggling or sinning, or it feels like God is distant from you, you might ask the question, can I lose my salvation? Maybe you've asked that from just a distant theological perspective, or maybe that question has gotten very real and very terrifying in your life. What conclusion do you draw from Romans 8? 
He just said that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ. Question, are you one of the things in creation? Yes, therefore not even you can separate you from the love of God. Your sin is not strong enough to separate you from his love. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the pursuing love of God if you are genuinely in Christ. And so trust him, believe in his strength to hold you fast even when it feels like he's not. You have the spirit of God in you. That's what Romans 8 has been saying is that you are this, this new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You're an entirely new human being. You're no longer a sinful dying man or woman. You're a supernatural immortal reality in Christ. You can't turn back into a dying person because you sin one too many times any more than you could turn into a dog because you bark one too many times. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you bark, you're a human being. Okay, if you're in Christ, you're alive. Even if you sin, you can't go back to death because that is not your nature anymore. And so because of that, he'll turn you into more than a conqueror in Christ. But what does being more than a conqueror in Christ look like. I think we, we tend to think of conquerors as this, this really triumphant, really powerful idea. And that's more the lens through which I used to see Christianity, that I had to go out and do really big things for God. And, and, you know, we were going to conquer the evil in the world. And, um, and I had to be part of this kind of triumphalistic, uh, idea of what Christianity is. But think about the type of conqueror that Jesus was. He was a power under kingdom, not a power over kingdom. He showed up riding a donkey. The way that he conquered death was by dying. The way that he conquered the Roman Empire was not this socio-political movement, but it was through a handful of tax collectors and fishermen who by the power of the spirit conquered the world through a message of love. That's the type of conquerors that we are in, that we are in Christ. And so when I think about what it means to be more than a conqueror, I think about my grandpa. So my grandpa is uh, kind of been a small town kid his whole life, lived a seemingly normal life from the outside, and he's been through a lot. He's been through a lot of things in his life, including a lot of really difficult financial difficulties. He was in local politics, and so he's seen bickering and infighting and mistrust. And through all of that, I, I've, I don't think I've ever heard my grandpa say one disrespectful thing about another human being. He just refuses to talk bad about people and just continues to believe the best of people. And he just keeps getting through difficult situations. I called him the other day. So he, he lives in Iowa. There were these terrible storms in Iowa, these straight line winds that would have been a category four hurricane. If it was a hurricane, it was awful. And so he had lost power and he had been without power for, I, I think it was over a week. And I called him up. I'm like, grandpa, how you doing? Like, I'm thinking about you. I'm worried about you. And he's like, oh, I'm great. I got the tailgating grill out. I got it on my deck. I get to grill every night. We sit out there. It's beautiful. I got the generator out. So I'm driving around making sure everybody's doing good. Does anybody need power? I got, I got the, the church refrigerator plugged into the generator. Make sure we're getting all the food safe there. I'm doing great. How are you? And I'm just like, come on, man. Like his response to everything is just peace and joy and hope. And he just simply, patiently keeps going. 
And, and I, I consistently just wonder, how are you doing this? And I, I think the main answer is something he, he says to me a lot when we talk or something he writes at the end of anything that he writes to me is we have a great God. And he just believes it. He just actually believes that that is true. And so he believes that God's gonna take care of him and he's gonna do good. And so he just keeps going. He doesn't give up and he lives in peace and joy and hope. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. So I I wanna be like that. I want us to be more like that as a church. Let me pray. Um, God, thank you for the hope that you offer us. And it's not always this kind of triumphant hope. It's we don't always feel like conquerors. I think this is one of those moments in history where maybe individually and also corporately as a church, it maybe feels like we're losing more than we're winning, but we believe that in your love, we're more than conquerors in Christ. So thank you for these amazing promises that you've made us. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. God, give your people assurance of their salvation, those who are genuinely saved and those who aren't. Those who trials and tribulations and persecution, famine, nakedness, sword would actually cause them to leave you because they loved other things more than they loved you. Would you help them to turn right now and believe and put their hope and trust in you that that you become the primary love of their life? But thank you, God, that we love you because you first loved us. You chose us, you made a way for us, you redeemed us in your love. And we just respond to that love. Thanks for all the hope and all the joy that you've given us, God. Help us to live in it this week. We love you. Amen.